Amen and amen. Please take your seats. And if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Second uh, Kings. Actually, let's, let's go to First Kings 22.51, and we'll read through Second Kings chapter 1. And before we do, let's pray together. O Lord our God and our Father, even before there's a word upon our lips, O Lord, behold, you know it all. Return man back to dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. We come this evening, our God, and ask you that you would satisfy us tonight with your loving kindness, that we might sing for joy and be glad all of our days. You'll draw near to us, O Lord, and reveal Your Word, that it might be that lamp and that light to our path that leads us in the everlasting way. We pray, Father, You'll search each heart here this evening and give us grace not to resist Your Holy Spirit as our fathers did in years gone by. We offer these prayers tonight, O Lord, that You would save the lost Restore the backslider and build us all up in your most holy ways. For Jesus' sake, amen. So let's pick up the reading in 1 Kings 22, and we'll read down to the end of 2 Kings chapter 1. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. In the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, And say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and said to him, Why have you returned? They said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair, or he was a hairy man, with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty, and he went up to Elijah, who was sitting down on the top of the hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, 
if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly, or come down and be quick about it. But Elijah answered him, Then, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, literally in the, in the Hebrew, come down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and came down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of His word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So there's a famous story told um, by the magazine of the Naval Institute, so I, I believe it's true, I hope it's true. It's also at the beginning, I think, of seven habits of highly successful people, but nonetheless. And it's about these battleships that were sailing through a heavy storm on maneuvers. And the lead battleship, in the lead battleship, was the Admiral of the Fleet. And the visibility was very poor. It was patchy fog that night, and the admiral was on, on the bridge keeping watch over the proceedings. And shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The admiral called out, and the lookout said, steady, which means it's coming directly at us, or we're going directly at it. It's not moving, right? Understand? We're on collision course. So the admiral then called down to the signal man, signal that ship, we're on a collision course with you. Advise you to change the course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change your course 20 degrees. The admiral said, send. I'm the admiral of the fleet. Change your course 20 degrees immediately. The response came back, I'm a seaman second class, sir. You'd better change your course 20 degrees. But this time the admiral was furious. He said, I'm an admiral in charge of a battleship. Change your course 20 degrees. And back came the flashing light. Yes, sir, but I am a lighthouse. <laughs> and the question, of course, that grips us is, who and what will make you change course in your life? That's the great question. What has the authority? Who has the authority to make your life change course, especially when you're heading the wrong direction. I stumbled across a, a quote from humorist James Thurber, heretofore unknown to me. He said, Before they die, all you human beings should learn or try to learn what they are running from and what they're running to and why. And that's quite profound because we're all running, right? 
and most of us are running from something, perhaps pain or disappointment or the merciless glance of a parent's disapproval. And that sense that no matter how hard you've tried in the past, you're never enough in the present, and so you keep running from that, trying to find success. And then what are you running to? Success, happiness, satisfaction, significance, security, the hope that you've not wasted your life, that your life is counted for something, perhaps. And then why are you running in the first place? Well, tonight we meet a man, Ahaziah, and he's running. He's only just begun to reign, but he's already begun to die, though he doesn't know that yet, though he's sick enough to be concerned. And it's really quite ironic and even more tragic. He's a dying man running away from the God who holds his life in his hands. And rather than running to the living God, he runs to dead idols and finds, well, he finds the kind of thing you'd expect to find there. He'll never find life among the dead in a graveyard where only death can be found. As we look at this passage this evening, I want us to see three things. First of all, a dying fool who rejects wisdom. Uh, secondly, we'll see a fiery God who demands respect. And thirdly, we see a firm word that will not budge. A firm word that won't budge. Firstly then, a dying fool who rejects wisdom. Isaiah is the son of Ahab, right? And God has been ringing the school bell for this man to listen for quite some time, but he doesn't have any ears to hear because he's rebellious, right? Remember, this is the man, no doubt, who endured the three years of famine at Elijah the Tishbite's word. No doubt, this is the man who had seen the scorched earth near Carmel Summit where the fire of God fell, and he perhaps saw the bloody waters down at the brook at the bottom of the mountain um, where all those prophets were butchered at the hand of Elijah. No doubt this man had also just seen the previous week or so the prophetic shenanigans we heard about in the last week's sermon when there were 400 prophets, false prophets, who told the king precisely what he wanted to hear, and the one prophet, Micaiah, who told the king what was true. Capital T truth, true at all times, in all places, and for all people, for all people in general, and for this king in particular. No doubt this man also had seen the grief-stricken rider returning from the captain with news of his father, shot through with an arrow, and the dumbfounded expression. I mean, if he'd been hit anywhere else in his body, the arrow would have bounced off. He was wearing armor, but it hit him right in the joint where the belly part met his chest plate. It was as if God Himself had fired the arrow, which is, of course, exactly what had happened, in a sense. And no doubt, perhaps, he had gone to pick up the royal chariot from the pool of Samaria. Someone had to do it, where the prostitutes washed themselves, and perhaps he saw the dogs licking up his father's blood, just as the prophet said. But all that truth that had come upon this young man didn't change him a bit. It washed off his back like water off a duck. Isaiah saw all this. Ahaziah, sorry, saw all this, but he learnt 
nothing. Those opening words we read at the beginning, at the end of the last chapter, Isaiah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, his father whom God had killed for his idolatry, and his mother, Jezebel, who would be killed for her idolatry, and in the way of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, you remember, the son of Nebat, the guy with the withered arm who made Israel to sin. And he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. And don't miss those words. Those words come at the end of First Kings. But in the Hebrew, the first book of First Kings and the book of Second Kings, like Ezra and Nehemiah and like First and Second Chronicles, are really all part of the same book, right? And these words stand at the end of one book, but they also lie at the foundation of the next book. There's a reason why Second Kings 1 begins the way it does. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel, the insurrection of a bordering enemy. And then verse 2, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, the insurrection of a bordering enemy and the incompetence of a bad carpenter. Why did that happen? Why did this man suddenly face international disaster and local disaster? If you read the previous verses of the previous chapter, it's not hard to see. Providence is catching up with him, and God is trying to teach him a lesson if only he will learn. And the problem, of course, the amazing thing is there is mercy in this severe providence. Moab has invaded the land, but he's still king. And he fell through a second-floor window, leaning against it, perhaps some, on a cool evening, shooting the breeze. But he didn't fall to his death. His body is broken, but he's not yet dead. Amazing mercy. God is trying to get him to listen. But he's a foolish king. He won't do such things. He won't listen to God. I wonder this evening, has God been trying to get your attention recently? Young people, perhaps through your parents, perhaps your parents have been talking to you, pleading with you, staying up late, reasoning with you, spanking you perhaps if you're younger. Are you listening? Perhaps your Bible reading, God's been, as He often does, He comes like Chinese water torture and just drip, drip, drip in the same spot. He's pointing out something in your life that needs to change, and are you listening? Or perhaps it's providence, those, those those providential warnings that come our way at times, that our conscience alarms us, and we know that this is the hand of God, it's the voice of God speaking to us, and yet, I wonder, are you listening? And if there's a lesson in Second Kings 1, it's don't be like Ahaziah, don't be a foolish king who refuses to listen. The second thing we see in our, in our sermon this evening is a fiery God who demands respect a fiery God who demands respect. Ahaziah has one chance to make the right decision. He's sick, and he suspects he just might be dying. And so, he can turn to the living God, or he can turn to a dead idol. And I think he rather suspects he won't like what the living God has to say. And so he's looking for another alternative, 
another voice who might give him a word of life in the midst of his death. Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, he says to these messengers, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel? Remember, this is his father. Remember, Jehoshaphat says, these, guys, these prophets here, not all prophets are equal. I mean, all prophets are equal, but some are more equal than others. And I don't think these guys are speaking for Yahweh. Is there a real prophet in here who's like Yahweh, a Yahweh man? And there's Micaiah. And they send, he sends messengers, and didn't learn that lesson. He sends messengers to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from the sickness. And Elijah sent. And isn't it interesting? Elijah intercepts the messengers before they get a chance to hear the lie from the false prophets. There's mercy there. Because you know those guys would have told the king precisely what he wanted to hear. But God doesn't let them get that message. He gives them truth. And again, the God who often meets people running from Him surely will not ignore you if you run to Him this evening. Vintage Yahweh, as Dr. Davis would say. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went, and the messengers turned, returned to the king. Now, it's interesting. They come back, but they don't, they don't seem to hurry to tell the king the message. The king says to them, why have you returned? I mean, so quickly. Well, what's, what's going on? And he said to him, well, this kind of weird guy came to meet us, and he was kind of hairy and had this belt around his waist, and kind of, he's like, it's just it was an odd character. And what did he say? And he said, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down. That's an important verb. As you might have heard in the reading, it repeats quite a lot through this passage. You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Here's more mercy. He's still breathing, right? God has told him, you're a dead man walking, but he's still walking. He's not dead yet. Where there's life, there's hope. God isn't very subtle. His word lands on Ahaziah's soul with all the subtlety of a brick through a plate glass window. I can almost read the, the headlines in the New Moloch Times. Is Yahweh a religious bigot? I mean, give me a break. Who does Yahweh think he is? I mean, if, if Ahaziah wants to go to a different church, what business is that of God's? That's the question. Obviously, the religious tolerance um, memo hasn't got to heaven. That the God of heaven takes the first commandment extremely seriously indeed. Thou shalt have no other gods in my sight before my face. And God takes it very personally indeed. A fiery God who demands respect. And yet in this rebuke, there's still mercy. 
isn't there? And that's really the, that's really the battle that we all face, isn't it, in life? Are we going to worship the true God, or are we going to allow other things, other people, other pleasures, other practices, other promises to control us the way only God should? And as Calvin famously observed, our hearts are a factory of idols. Ahaziah turned to Beelzebub. What idols do you turn to? What, what, things, what things down here? Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 1, how these people, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That's always the way idolatry works. We turn away from the Creator and we worship creatures. It might be our wife, it might be our husband, it might be our children. I'd even be our pets. I was on the phone talk, talking to the vet recently, and he said to me, uh, the, the receptionist said about Baxter, are you his dad? And I said, no. I said, I've got one wife and six children, which is very much better than six wives and one child. But I am not Baxter's dad. I am his owner, right? <laughs> I bought him. I did not sar him. Um, and she goes, of course, of course. It's kind of like you know, this pleasant charade. But it was like, we worship our animals, our fur babies, right? Now, I don't, don't send me letters or emails about, but I'm against pets. I love pets. I love Baxter. He's a dear, dear dog. He brings great pleasure and joy to my heart and life. But he's a dog, right? And I love him, but he's a dog. But we worship almost anything in America except the true God. And how do you know what, what do you worship? Well, there's a number of questions you can ask. And this is my first lesson in premarital counseling. If you've taken that class with me, you can just tune out for five minutes. But question number one is, what makes you angry? Or what do you allow to make you angry? Because anger is the passion. True anger is the passion God intends to motivate you to get up and to protect what, or to, um, to protect what really matters and to punish those who threaten it. When what really matters is at stake, we ought to be angry to protect it and punish those who threaten it. And the problem, of course, is when we get the idolatry, we've got the God question wrong, we're getting the what really matters question wrong. And our anger will be provoked by all the wrong things and in all the wrong ways and almost always to in all the wrong extent. It'll be too hot we take people's sins personally. And for Christians, most often our idols aren't bad things that we shouldn't want at all. They're good things we want too much, right? Like the respect of our wife, the love of our husband, the convenience of our plans, that everything goes according to plan, being in control of things. Those are good things. But if they become ultimate things, as one a friend of mine said recently in the sermon, if a good thing becomes a God thing, it's just become an idolatrous thing. And one of the ways you'll know is that you'll become angry. Sometimes it might be like 
you know, the illustration this morning, mums, whenever you, whenever you, those of you who homeschool, or even if, if you don't homeschool, but homeschoolers especially, you're carrying the weight of your children's success, right? If they grow up and can't read, write, or do sums, if somebody asks them, what is two plus two, and they say six, that doesn't reflect well on you. They'll think your child is stupid, and your child is stupid because you have failed as a homeschooling mother, which is why when they get their math wrong and they're being lazy, you take it much more personally than you ought to, much more personally than children, the teachers at school take it, because to the teachers at school, they're just somebody else's child. But when your child gets your lessons wrong, it's your child, and that could affect your reputation. People might think you were a bad mother, and that's quite a lot to bear on your shoulders. And so you become much more angry because you're really worshiping not just your child's success, but maybe your own reputation that hangs on whether your child can get two and two and get four. When do you become angry? The similar thing is, when do you start worrying? Like, what, what kind of things cause you to really stress out? Like, whenever I was in Savannah, I was the pastor of the fastest-growing Presbyterian church in Savannah until I wasn't. And I had no idea how much of my identity was caught up in this church that was growing until it stopped growing began shrinking. And then I began getting really worried and stressed and angry at the people that were causing it to shrink because they were causing division and stressed out because my church was shrinking. And I didn't realize how much of my identity was caught up in it until it was taken away. And there's a good example. A good thing becomes a God thing. Whenever the success of your ministry starts to matter to you more than the glory of your master, you've got a problem. But quite often, it's the goodness of the minister, or the goodness of the thing blinds you to the idolatry of it. Like, what could, what, could matter more than, what could matter more than a ministry doing well? God. God matters more. What could matter more than a child's salvation? God. But as you get that back to front, if your child's salvation begins mattering to you more than God Himself, when your children don't do well spiritually, you'll take it really personally. You become very angry with them in a way that never produces the righteousness of God. So when do you become angry? When do you become stressed? When do you worry? Another great question is, what things do you want so much that you're willing to sin in order to get it? Answer that question. You're just listing your idols. There are other questions too, but those are the big three. Our idols are much more sophisticated than Beelzebub, but no less deadly. Only Jesus can say to you, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. Every other idol you might worship, even if it's a good thing, when it becomes a God thing, it becomes a deadly thing. And it's saying to you, I have come that you might have death and have it in abundance forever. So, figuring out what your idols are is kind of an important thing to think through because God will not have, He will not tolerate, He loves you too much and He loves His glory too much to tolerate competitors. And it's beautiful, the, the Trinity actually, you might think it's God, like, why is God so God-centered? Because there's more than one person in God. It's like the Father is, is consumed with His Son's glory. He wants you to honor His Son. And the Son, He's consumed with the Father's glory. He wants you to honor His Father. 
And the Father and the Son want you to honor, or the, the Spirit wants you to honor the Father and the Son. And the Father and the Son want you to honor and not grieve the Holy Spirit. There's an other-centeredness at the heart of God's God-centeredness that makes it beautiful and lovely. It's not the selfishness of a prideful ogre, but it's the love of a, of a, of a tender father and a, and, a, and a faithful son and a Holy Spirit. A, far, a firm, a fiery God who demands respect then, and a dying fool who rejects wisdom. And then lastly, we see a firm word that won't budge. Isaiah, Ahaziah has got one more chance <laughs> to make things right. And notice he could have sent messengers to Elijah. Just like he sent messengers to Baal Akron, okay? First serve down, second serve. And he could have sent a messenger to actually care to know what Elijah had to say, but he doesn't send a messenger. He sends 50 armed men. He sends like a, a, the kind of the Israeli Marines or the Navy SEALs. You don't send 50 Navy SEALs if you want a teleconference with the prophet. He's trying to bully the prophet because he thinks if I put enough pressure on Elijah, he might give me a magical word of life. It's like that paganism idea. I can, kind of, I can coerce God um, to, to make him say whatever I want to hear. So these prophets come. Uh, these uh, soldiers come. Uh, and the question is, who has the authority to give God's servant marching orders and to call him down from his mountain? And this is also a little comical and even more tragic. 102 men become the military equivalent of creme brulee because of the king's arrogance. So, if you remember before, right, you might say, who has the authority over life and death? And God says to Ahaziah, you will not come down. It's the Hebrew verb yarad, if you're interested. You will not come down from your sickbed. You're dead, right? Well, that verb repeats. And the question is, who has the authority to tell God's man to come down from the mountain? So listen as we read it again. Then the king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, literally, thus says the king, which is a divine oracle, right? Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. He, he, he didn't get the memo, when in stupid, stop stupiding. And he answered, and he went to, and he said, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down and be quick about it. But Elijah answered him, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life 
and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Come down with him. Do not be afraid of him. Again, indication that that was precisely the point. Elijah was supposed to feel fear in the presence of these messengers. So he arose and went down, came down with him to the king, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Who is the authority to coerce the prophet to come down, to coerce the prophet to say one thing and not another? And the answer is clear, God and God alone. In our journey through life, we make many choices, don't we? And the most important of these choices is, is where would you look for truth, and when you find it, will you listen to it? And quoting the old uh, crusader at the end of the last crusade, is it the last crusade for um, um, Indiana Jones when the, the man picked up the golden chalice, drank it, and then melted in the most horrible way, and the crusader said, he chose poorly. <laughs> Bit of an understatement. Ahaziah chose poorly. Are you listening to God? Are you taking God's Word every morning and saying, Lord, speak, for thy servant is listening? Are you reading, praying through the Bible and saying, Lord Jesus, come and give me a word, a word from my Father. Search me, O Lord, and try my heart. Search me and know my mind and see if there be any hurtful way in me, a way that hurts me, a way that hurts other people, and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a mistake as I made. He, he didn't ever do that. He didn't take God seriously. He didn't take the Word seriously, and he paid for it with his life. And the chapter, for one of many reasons, is in this book to tell you don't make the same mistake. If you open your ears to God's Word, listen to Him. God will not bend His Word to our will. Only choice is to bend our will to His Word. Remember in Matthew 21, we'll finish here this evening, Jesus tells a parable about a master of a house who planted a vineyard 
and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They respect my son. For when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another tenant who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits, its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they, were, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And that's like the New Testament echo of this passage, isn't it? Ahaziah, like the admiral in that ship, was determined that the lighthouse would move because he thought it was only a ship. God's not going to move. Don't try to bend God's will to yours. Bend your will to God's, which is the sum and substance of repentance. Because He won't change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not a jot, not a you, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, not a tittle, the smallest stroke of a scribe's pen, None of that will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. It's absolute, ultimate reality. It will not bend to us. We must bend ourselves to it. And Christ is coming, and He's saying to you this evening, is there an area in your life where you're struggling to repent? Is there deadness in your soul that you can't remove? Jesus says, I've got a fix for that. Come to me. Let me put life where there was only death. Let me put light where there was only darkness. For my people will be willing in the days of my power. Christ is a wonderful Savior, as Augustine knew. He said, first of all, give me chastity, but not yet. Later in life, He said, give what you command, and then command whatever you will. And the God of First and Second Kings, the God of the life and times of Elijah, is amazingly merciful. The fire fell on the soldiers, not on Ahaziah. God, God spares him again and again and again to see if he will listen. And he hasn't changed. But don't sport with his patience, young people. 
it is a it has a sell by date. Henry Martin said, God's love has a heaven and his wrath a hell to display themselves to all eternity. But his patience has a short lived earth. Don't be like Isaiah. Don't don't provoke his patience. Don't sport with them. Come to him and say, Lord, make me willing in the day of your power. And let my life be precious in your sight. And Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, O Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we come to you this evening. We thank you for the precepts, principles, and examples of your most holy word. We pray, Father, that you will teach us to follow the good and reject the bad, to see your mercy in the life of Ahaziah, and to avoid his stubborn hardness of heart and unbelief. And grant that none here, O God, today if we hear your voice, we would not harden our hearts as at Meribah, as the Jews did at Meribah and Messiah when they rebelled against you in the wilderness. O God, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to our children, and let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm the work of our hands and give us life even though we deserve death. In Jesus' name, amen.